0: Hey, welcome to the Gentle Rebel podcast, where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Morton, a songwriter and creativity coach. I love exploring the power of gentleness in creating conditions for meaningful change from the inside out. In this episode, I want to talk about uh, confidence, in particular, the link between failure and confidence and ways in which uh, the confidence that we might feel in life can be tied to the feelings. Uh, that we have about what might happen if things go wrong or if things go right. Basically, things on the other side of uh, particular encounters, particular events, particular um, uh, uh, projects that we might be engaged in. Confidence is one of the core themes in our Haven annual calendar. Um, And that's because it's really a building block of personal strength. You know, when we recognize its source, Um, in the world around us, different places around us that we can gather it from. We can shift our understanding of confidence from something on the surface, you know, something that we um, kind of perceive uh, or the story that we write about how other people are um, and what we're missing or what we're lacking. We can change that into something that we we, we can actually intentionally uh, draw on, something we can be intentionally creating and manoeuvring in order to serve our most important um, personal projects. It's one of those words that's going to mean different things to different people, probably mean different things uh, depending on when we're thinking about it during the day or during the week as well. A lot of the time we might jump to this image of self-confidence. That might be what this word conjures in our minds and how a person um, displays confidence as an individual or how a person you know, lacks confidence. But we use the word in other ways as well, don't we? Maybe we do so without really thinking, especially when it comes to the idea of having confidence. You know, we talk to people in confidence. That's the assurance that they're not going to tell anybody else what we say. You know, we've we've got the issue. We've got the confidence that what we say doesn't go any further. We place our confidence in people, in leaders. We're assured that you know they're going to be working in the interests of their followers. They're not going to be, uh, you know, when when a leader has the confidence of their followers. Those followers pretty much <laughs> believe that uh, they're not going to be working in their own self-interest, that, that, that they've got the, the kind of the hive in mind. And we put confidence in our things and in objects. We're assured that, for example, the car is going to get us from where we are to where we want to go. We put confidence in the things that we buy. We're <laughs> confident that, you know, the, the food that you buy in the shop is not going to kill you, for example. In our Courtyard Workshop, where we were looking at ideas around confidence recently, uh, we were t- looking at the story of the three little pigs and using that to uh, to kind of frame uh, our reflections on different sources of confidence in life. Sources such as, um, you know, we might be confident um, in, in an outcome. You know, we're confident that something is going to happen. Uh, maybe if we do a certain thing, uh, we can be pretty sure that this other thing will occur as a result can be confidence, uh, confident in, in a person, so confident that someone is going to kind of do what they say they're going to do. Um, confidence in an object, as I say, you know, in the thing that we use, um, confidence in the car, for example. Confidence in self, so confidence in our own ability to, to do or to adapt, to respond uh, to whatever it is that we might be facing. Uh, confidence in time, so this idea that, um, the feelings that we might be experiencing right now or a situation that we're in um, we can be confident that that will change and it doesn't require us to intervene in it it's just sort of giving uh, give giving our um, giving over control surrendering to the fact that you know in time this will change and then kind of the opposite of that the confidence in process confidence in um, what can happen through commitment so through sort of um what often might be showing up regularly over time we've been confident that uh if we do this every day if we perform this habit all the time could be pretty confident that in six months in a year this this will uh, have an impact um and in the story of the three little pigs they have this goal um, of building homes for themselves they've kind of moved out of the the childhood home or the the what are they, piglets I suppose, piglet home um, and the first little pig wants to build his house as quickly as possible so he can play so he gathers together these bales of straw and and very quickly builds himself a little house and his two brothers look at it and it's like, they're like yeah that's not great mate um, it's not going to stand up to the, uh, to the strong winter winds it's going to leak when it rains and it's not going to protect you from the big bad wolf uh, but the little pig is like "Ah, oh, it's fine, I'm, I'm going to go and play the second little pig, determined to build a stronger safe house, he's seen, you know, what his, what his brother's done. He's like, oh, I'm going to do something better than that. But when he sits down to think about how he's going to approach his project, starts to think, okay, how, what, what could I make this out of? What's it going to look like? He becomes distracted because he can see his brother, you know, he's playing and he's having fun. He's like, oh, I kind of want to do that. So he builds himself a house as quickly as possible and joins in. So he gets the sticks, builds them into a into a house. And the third little pig is like, oh, what's he doing? Um, so he calls after the second pig. Yeah, that's, mate, that's not much better than the straw house. <laughs> but he was ignored by pig number two, who was trotting away to join his brother playing. Um, and then the third little pig spent a long time building his house, builds it out of bricks and mortar. And uh, he calls... Yeah, it's going to be time to play. It's fine. When this house is finished, there's going to be loads of time to play. I'll, be, I'll, I'll join you there. As uh, in response to the pleas from his brothers. Yeah, come on, just chill out. Come and play. Um, and then not long after, all three houses were complete. The big bad wolf prowls around the village, very hungry, searching for food. Comes across the straw house. He's like, oh, get a bit hungry. Tummy's rumbling here. Yeah. Um, little pig, little pig, let me come in he calls the first little pig was inside and absolutely terrified so he calls back in a trembling voice no mr wolf i will not let you in go away leave me alone as you please snarls the wolf i'll huff and i'll puff and i'll blow your house down so he takes a deep breath he puffs out his cheeks blows as hard as he can and sure enough the house of straw can't stand the power of the wolf Clouds of straw fly all over the place. The house falls to the ground, leaving the little pig with no shelter. And then out of this cloud, the little pig runs as fast as he possibly can to his brother's house of sticks, hammering on the door. um, And his his brother lets him in. The wolf soon arrives at the house of sticks and can hear these uh, voices, the scared voices of the two little pigs inside. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in, he calls. No, Mr. Wolf, we will never let you in. The wolf flicks his lips. Very well, then I'll huff and I'll puff and I'll blow your house down. So he, he does that, he blows and blows. And pretty soon the house of sticks begins to shake and wobble and tumbles down around the terrified little pigs who are huddled together in fear. Very quickly, they're puffing and panting and run to their brother's house of brick. shouting, help us, the wolf's coming. The third little pig hears the cries and opens the door wide to let them in. Hey guys, (laughs) don't be afraid, Uh, this house isn't going to fall down, come on in, lock the door. Um, And so the the wolf prowls around the house of bricks, his mouth really, really watering, his tummy really, really rumbling at the thought of the three little pigs trapped inside. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in, he calls again. You know, probably thinking, I'm causing loads of destruction here, just let me in. And he was not surprised to hear the three voices shout, no. (laughs) Um, from the inside the wolf smiles begins huffing and puffing trying to blow the house of bricks down but as hard as he tries it doesn't budge he realises that he's going to have to try something else if he wants to get in if he wants to get to the pigs so he starts to scramble up onto the roof of the house thinking oh there's a chimney I'll just climb down that Um, and the pigs hear the wolf above their heads and knew what he was trying what he was up to. Uh, The third little pig says, ah, I've got a plan. got to light the fire straight away. So they did that. And very soon had this, this crackling fire burning. And they could hear the wolf coming down the chimney. And they were like, yes, I think the plan's worked. And then with a loud thump, the wolf lands in the fireplace. His tail catches a light and he runs howling from the house. He knows that he's been beaten. He does say he's never going to trouble the pigs again, but I I mean, I'm not sure they can believe that. Um, And then the pigs who built their houses from straw and sticks, I kind of seen why it was maybe worth building a house of bricks. So they made new plans and set about building. Maybe they did that together. Um, Who knows? So that was um, a general telling of that story. Um, I've changed a few details, left a couple of things out there in a a lot of the versions that I came across um not least it, it's the the treatment of the wolf is interesting so some stories have the wolf uh, have the pigs kind of put a big cauldron of water on a fire um and then the wolf falls into the cauldron and sort of boils but i thought that's a bit harsh and also doesn't represent what i want to use the wolf as as we use this story to reflect confidence which the wolf is is a metaphor for you know life's um, kind of unexpected maybe expected but life's things that we don't like knocking at the door um you know and if we if we we, you can't boil life's surprises once and for all and and they never come back um and and that's why like even with the the idea that the wolf has said the wolf knows he's and he vows never to return to the to the pigs it's like well he's saying that now but i think once he's gone it's a bit like We've probably all met people like that who say, Yeah, don't worry, I'll I will not do that again. Like within a week, they're, they're back doing the same thing. Um, so that's that's how I see the wolf. Anyway, let's um yeah, let's break this down and, and think about confidence um in conjunction with this story. Um so the the area of life, and I think it's important to remember that we're we're using something quite specific. So it's context dependent and and i think confidence often is com- context dependent so the the area of the li- of life that the pigs are focused on moving out of their childhood home building homes building houses uh, so that they can live independently and you know get ready to start families or something whatever whatever they've got planned i'm not sure um but building houses is the, is the ultimate objective and so we learn from the two brothers assessment of the straw house that these houses need to serve a purpose be resilient enough to, to withstand winter weather, be strong enough to keep the big bad wolf out and to kind of keep them safe inside. Um, it's interesting that confidence in this respect is pinned to something tangible rather than being this abstract uh, concept. And so in the previous episode, I talked about uh, judgment in a similar way. You know, judgment is used when we have criteria by which to assess something so that we can improve it. Rather than you know the, the sort of judgment that we might cast, which is not pinned to anything in particular, it's just cast upon something like that is terrible. Okay, well, what, why is that? it's just terrible? <laughs> um, you know, I use the example of the the judge in a dancing competition. Uh, I just there's just something about that dancer I don't like, so therefore I've thrown all of the criteria that I would normally um, have to assess this dancer by. And given them a score of zero because ah, it's just something about them. And likewise, confidence is not simply a feeling we have, but it's something tied to concrete evidence. There's, there's an ad- objective, something that we are, you know, using the confidence to support in some way. Um, to build a house that you can be confident will do what it needs to do. It's going to keep you safe, it's going to remain structurally sound, and it's going to withstand external forces when we think about confidence outside of a context where it's not tied to anything concrete it can lead to recklessness and over-reliance on um, kind of magical thinking and perception management you know confidence that it'll be fine it's going to work out fine or the yeah the universe has got my back it will support me or people will look after me and i'll land on my feet if it all goes wrong and I don't think these are always bad positions to take or, or bad that there's nothing wrong with them in certain at certain times. In fact, I think they're liberating and enlivening <laughs> at particular times. But when they're groundless assumptions that can lead to recklessness and a lack of uh, taking responsibility for things that actually we need to and can take responsibility for um, in order to, to kind of shore up some certainty. Um, that's when it's like, yeah, maybe, maybe not an ideal uh, approach or attitude to, to have. Uh, in many versions of the story, the first pig is described as lazy. So one of the things I, I tried to do as much as possible was take value judgments out of, out of it when I was telling it. Because um, I don't think that pig is particularly lazy, but there's a danger that it could be complacent, not doing what it needs to, to do or not doing what needs to be done in service of the required outcome maybe unaware that this is the outcome i don't know if they sat down before they started building their houses and started designing their houses and said okay these are the criteria these are the things that your house needs to do (laughs) maybe he was just like oh great i've seen a house before i can make something like that looks like a house um and so maybe with misplaced confidence he has this this sense that he can do whatever he wants because he knows actually like if this if this is wrong or if this does go wrong i'm going to, one of my siblings is going to look after me it's be it's going to be fine um so that, yeah just take those three pigs consider the mindset in the story of these of these three pigs this is just my interpretation this is this is not a definitive reading of the three little pigs uh i haven't studied it um in any sort of literary sense but the first pig basically like, he says, I don't know what I should do, but I just want to play. It'll be fine. So he has confidence that there is nothing to worry about. The second pig says, I know what I ought to do, but I like the look of playing. So his confidence is maybe that as long as there aren't any storms or wolves, because I know they are a threat, I'm going to take my chances. What's, what could go wrong? And then the third little pig says, I, I know what I need to do um, so that I can... Give myself, you know, I can build this house that's safe, that's uh, watertight, that's warm, whatever. So he has confidence that if he builds the house in this out of bricks in this strong way, he doesn't need to worry about the weather or the wolf. Uh, I think it would be interesting to add a fourth pig, to be honest, who's <laughs> like, I know what I need to do, but I can't stop adding things to protect myself from what could go wrong, from what the big bad wolf could do. Maybe a slightly sort of more. Neurotic pig that becomes obsessed with the threat and builds an impenetrable for- fortress with loads and loads of layers of walls and doors and everything. It's just a little bit more. I'm g- I can come and play once I feel like this is really truly safe. But yeah, is there ever such a thing? Um, and I wonder which of the pigs you relate to most. <laughs> uh, there's a question. I think my affinities, like I. I was thinking about it. I'd like to be the third pig, but I think it's the second one. I think I'm, you know, I know what I ought to do, but then I, I sort of look and I'm like, oh, I like the look of playing. I'm going to go and do that. Um, but I'm not the f- the first pig in that, you know, I'm, uh, there's the the nagging thought of like, no, you, should, you should really ought to make this out of bricks, mate. Um, so we talked <laughs> in the original workshop about the idea of confidence being a case of Assessing the threat level and responding accordingly, appropriately and proportionately. So the first pig didn't understand the threat in my reading. The second pig understood the threat but didn't take it seriously. And the third pig understood the threat and took it seriously, um, but didn't go beyond. I I imagine he was out there playing um, fairly quickly, fairly soon after he'd finished that last bit of whatever he did to finish that brick and mortar house the fourth pig doesn't understand the threat and takes it seriously doesn't understand the threat because um he uh, doesn't know when enough is enough uh, there obviously isn't a fourth pig but you know i i like the idea of a fourth pig so in the workshop we go through the six sources of confidence that i mentioned earlier so the outcome object other people uh, process self and time And then consider how each of these looks as a a house of straw, house of sticks and house of bricks Um, and take a a particular situation or or a goal or whatever it is uh, that that is kind of a challenge for you now or something on your mind Um, and kind of think about, yeah, where where those sources of confidence sit within that for you. Um, I'll put a link to the workshop in the show notes. So if you are feeling a, a lack of confidence or you're, you're kind of grappling with this sense of, you know, my confidence is kind of lacking in this area, as you embark on a change or a project or a particular situation, or entering a new season of life or something, then yeah, this can encourage you and inspire you to to think of ways to build more confidence into that situation uh, and into yourself within that context um, in, I guess, slightly unusual ways. Um, So, yeah, link in the show notes for that uh, free, free workshop. Okay, so uh, let's move on to talking about less of a farmyard example, and more of a real life example of where confidence uh, might come from. Uh, It feels like a good time to share this story too because England have just lost their first test match since embarking on a process that I want to talk about. Um, They lost in another of the most exciting games of cricket ever in which New Zealand beat them by one run. Um, Only the second time I believe that that's ever happened um, in a test match. So a five-day test match. For those who don't understand or don't know about cricket don't understand cricket you don't need to it's fine I'm going to talk about this the kind of team mentality rather than the game itself um, and I also realized that you know this story could age in all manner of ways in the future uh, who knows where the, the how where the team will evolve into and, and what might happen um, and I imagine that how things are right now are going to change dramatically But I think it's worth sharing this and worth reflecting on it because it's a fascinating example of how confidence emerges when we feel safe and connected um, and like it's okay to fail. Um, And so, yeah, to go back to the start of this, in 2022, the England uh, Test Cricket team launched this kind of new philosophy, moved into this new approach uh, that they were taking to their game after a few years of... uh, quite miserable, uh, miserable time of it um, when they lost a lot of games and did so in really not very exciting fashion. So it wasn't just a case of losing, it was a case of just whimpering around. Um, and so after this, they, they brought in a new uh, leadership both on and off the field and and adopted this new radical approach to this form of cricket that had never been done before it's this kind of expansive attacking really exciting way to play very aggressive cricket um, in the sense of going after going after a a lot of runs very quickly Um, and it's increased the entertainment um, for both the players um, and the audience as well and so the team is committed to this brand of cricket that, that really pushes the boundaries goes way beyond the old approaches to the game the very the you know, traditionalists, I don't know how people <laughs> feel about it, but it's, it is quite radical um, when it comes to the uh, yeah cucumber sandwiches brigade. Um, it requires everyone involved to play with a sense of freedom and with a sense of confidence. In a sense, you have to be confident to play in the team, but the confidence is framed not from a starting point that, you know, we just want confident people who are really, really good Um, and they're confident that they can win, but actually the opposite. It's built on trust and safety and instilled trust and safety in the players about what will happen if and when they lose. And so it's been fascinating to kind of observe the psychological impact of this. In a sense, they are working with a hypothesis that in cricket, it's uh, potentially a fear of losing that makes losing more likely. And so fearless cricket is built not on fearlessness of the opposition, but fearlessness of failure. And maybe that's what fearlessness always boils down to, I'm not sure. But in an interview after um, an historic series win against Pakistan, one of the players talked uh, about the freedom everyone feels because they are willing to lose games. And I found that so fascinating as a way to frame it it reminds me of the the way freedom is described in the book the courage to be disliked that we're looking at at the moment in the haven book club that freedom isn't an absence of the thing you don't want it's an acceptance of it and a willingness to face it and it says you know we will be disliked by someone whether we like it or not so freedom is accepting that fact and so similarly in this new cricket mentality the ability to win comes from the freedom to lose and this is built on the confidence everyone has in what they know what they can be confident will happen when they do lose and they know they will lose and they have now lost (laughs) Um, and it seems like this has kind of yeah been proven and so this confidence isn't just built on words even in the uh, the particularities of the of individual games themselves. The captain, uh, Ben Stokes, not only leads by example and plays the game he wants others to play, others to be free to, to play in the style of, but he encourages them to pursue this vision, even if it brings failure, knowing that it is going to bring failure, because you, you're not going to succeed every single time. And so from his perspective, the willingness to lose is not just preached, it's not just like... I want everyone to feel free to to fail and I want you to take risks and do that. He practices it as well. You know, he is leading by example. He's doing that and he is failing spectacularly at times. Um, and so for individuals who might fail in particular games, it doesn't matter. And for the team, you know, as I say, they just lost, but in one of the greatest games on, on record. And that didn't go... Unappreciated by everyone involved, which is really, really interesting. Like both sides, people in many different kind of spheres, whether they support one of the teams or not, it's like actually there's something about that—the way that they approached that game—that was just really fun, exciting, um, and yeah, just entertaining. And so, this kind of takes takes a huge rebellion as well. Dare I say, gentle rebellion, especially when the failure does happen. It's one thing preaching it, it's another thing practicing it. And so Ben Stokes has done just that again and again. Where other captains would be annoyed, he has his eyes fixed on the values, the motivation, the vision at the heart of what they're doing, what they've decided uh, and agreed on as the the core of of their approach. He always put his arm around his players, even if they've, you know, failed, quote-unquote, always encouraging in the knowledge of what they're capable of, not what they've just done. And I think that's a really uh, key part of this as well, that takes a very special kind of leadership, very brave. It requires a connection and a conviction related to that deeper and broader sense of why something matters. And to recognise this person is, is not just what they've done. It's not just what they've just done. <laughs> it's, you know, there's, there's something more Than, than this moment, and from the perspective of those who they uh, need to buy into this, it requires confidence that you know other people are going to be true to their word. Um, So when you're when you're playing for a leader like that, when you're playing as part of that kind of team, you need to you need to be reassured and and feel safe that you are going to still be accepted. You are going to it's still going to be okay even if you fail in this game. And so it's also confidence in the collective confidence in the idea of team that we're all invested in this same idea. It's about us. It's about we, not me and confidence in the values and the vision of the leaders actually buying into that stuff, having confidence that this is the right way to go and knowing, okay, if I, if I don't believe in that, then maybe, uh, well, maybe that will be realized by the, the leadership and they'll, we'll have a conversation. I probably won't be in the team. Um, but also, yeah, just uh, if you do buy into it, if you, if you are part of that, knowing that it's, you're contributing to something, it's, it's not about you. It's, a, it's about, yeah, something, the, the meaning of contributing to to a wider, a deeper, a broader cause. And We talked about um, this idea of kind of leaders showing that it's safe to fail um, in the Haven Cotter and this difference between humanness and sloppiness or complacency. Um, and we were kind of reflecting on the fact that in certain industries, there's a demand for failure, you know, in a sense, not failing is the ultimate failure. It's a sign of that. It's not safe that uh, you're not able to do your job properly. Essentially when there's uncertainty involved, you, you are going to get it wrong. And so for, for things like innovation, preparation, contingency, uh, predictions, creativity so on they're going to be effective they must be uh, everything must be okay with getting it wrong because by the time you can be certain it's too late you know by the time you can be certain about a particular creative pursuit it's too late because someone else has already done it that's the only time that you can know something will work Um, and we talked about the example of like uh, intelligence as well like you only know for certain that something is a threat after the attack is carried out or after the, the thing that is the threat happens. And so hunches and suspicions and intuitive niggles can be supported by as much data and hard evidence as possible. But ultimately, you are going to get it wrong from time to time. You're going to make a wrong prediction. You're going to sort of think that this adds up to that and actually the thing might not ever have happened. And that has to feel safe, or it has to feel safer to be wrong than to be afraid of acting when you think you might be right um, and turn out to be right. Because if you don't take action, that thing that happens, you know, that could have been avoided. Um, Or like in, in that example of creativity, it's like the feeling that it's okay to, you know, create something dud and you can't be certain Either way, this this is going to, the only time that you can be certain that something creative is going to work is when you have that feeling of like, oh, I had that idea first and they've they've gone and done it. It's like, yeah, well, there's your certainty that that worked. (laughs) And it's too late. Um, So like when starting out on something new, it's imperative to prioritise failure. You know, it's a cliche, isn't it, to say failure is what leads to growth and, you know, there is no failure, only learning and, and so on. But it's still one of those things that I think we give lip service to in theory, but don't necessarily um, obey or observe in reality. We're often hindered by the threat of failure. We obsess over, yeah, I'm making this perfect, making excuses when it isn't perfect, and leading from a position of defensiveness uh, where we're kind of ready to fight our corner and make excuses for the mistakes um that that might have happened and when we play things safe we protect ourselves don't we we keep it small uh, we, we avoid uh, wasting things or uh, you, you just shrink the world um and this is not the kind of safety that we need you know playing um because things are safe is a different matter altogether it's underpinned by the assurance that we will figure out what to do if this goes wrong so playing it safe is different from playing because it's safe um and this is an interesting thing to think about. Useful to hold in balance with the idea that people um, uh, might hold that if if people are unafraid to make mistakes, they're going to be sloppy and complacent and lazy. The safety to make mistakes isn't the elimination of accountability for the mistakes we might make. And, and this, again, is the key distinction. distinction. Mistakes don't become someone else's problem to clean up. It's not like... Um, if you feel safe to make mistakes, you make the mistake and then it's like, ah, oh, it doesn't matter. Someone else will sort that out. But we're given a clear sense of a, a process and uh, the the support, knowledge that we will be supported, that we can be confident in if we make a mistake, if things go wrong. Um, so the consequences then are not this kind of fatalistic thing. They're not completely destructive to us and to our sense of self-worth and all that kind of thing. We're not going to be exiled. We're not going to be thrown out or banished from the social order. But we might need to go and have some difficult conversations. We're might, we going to need to go and clean up whatever mess might be left. We might need to fix whatever broke. uh, And we might need to implement some kind of contingency plan. It's obviously broad generalisations, not talking about anything specific. Um, But I think this is part of the safety itself. And part of the reason we're not going to be sloppy, <laughs> you know, knowing that, yeah, it is safe to make those mistakes. It, we can sort it out. It's a, it's OK. We will figure out what to do if it goes wrong. Um, but we're not going to just be reckless because it, it is a pain, <laughs> it is a pain to clean that up. But it is OK, fundamentally. And just because the implications of a mistake um, can be bad, it can lead to really annoying consequences or or dire consequences that doesn't stop them from occurring you know where there is uncertainty there is going to be uh, a degree of error and where there are humans making judgments about things that are not black and white there's always going to be less than perfect solutions there's always going to be okay trade-off and payoff and if we're told that whatever we do we must not fail (laughs) then when we do fail we have to hide it we hide it we cover up we blame We dig deeper holes. We make the problems worse. And so healthy cultures, something we were talking about in our uh, Cotter discussion, the idea of of healthy cultures bring failure early. They make it safe to bring failure early. And everybody in that environment, in that culture, knows that when they do, it will get worked out. And so there's a a reward uh, of ownership and responsibility, ownership for the things that happen. And this is met not with passivity, but with action. It's met with the question, okay, thank you for bringing that to me. Like, how, how are we going to address this? How are we going to make this right? How are we going to, yeah, respond? And this, as I say, makes people less sloppy. Because um, you don't want to be in that position, but you know that if you are in that position, it's going to be okay. And you know, as I say, in a, in a human environment, that will happen from time to time, and it's okay if and when it does. A safe leader doesn't just abandon or disown someone who makes a mistake. They also use it as an opportunity uh, for growth, for learning. Um, They make taking responsibility feel like a, a more rewarding, safe and attractive option than covering up or pretending that it didn't happen. What does this failure tell us about our goals, our expectations, our assumptions? Does it tell us about insights that we might take from this, gaps in skills, how we communicated, you know, what could we do differently next time? What was missing? What led to this? Who else needs to hear this story so that the same mistake doesn't get repeated, at least not in the same way? And maybe it is one of those things. <laughs> maybe it is something that actually we did everything by the book and it's st- it still happened. Um, and while it's not ideal, this kind of thing will happen again. And that itself can be a helpfully reassuring conclusion to reach as well for those involved. I wonder if you can relate to the the link between scarcity and confidence, the story that we tell ourselves about what happens uh, when what we have is all gone. A few years ago, uh, I remember, I can't believe I'm going to tell you this. I I felt aware of this uneasy feeling that I was experiencing. I was like, "What what is this? feel like uh, i don't feel relaxed and do you know what i realized it was i i had no cheese in the fridge and i had no coffee in the house and that's that's what it was i went out (laughs) i went out and bought coffee and cheese and when i woke up the next morning i felt really confident perhaps i might have exaggerated that story slightly Uh, perhaps not quite as extreme as that but maybe you get what I mean. Like when you're well stocked with something that you need or like, or both, as is is the case with cheese and coffee, um, you feel a sense of okayness about life. You're like, ah, I've got got loads of cheese in the fridge, got loads of coffee in the cupboard. Uh, It's fine. I feel like whatever comes my way today, it'll be okay. Um, Like when you're doing a job and you've got plenty of resources to, to carry it out without worrying. You know, you've got a full tank of fuel a full box of pet food, a full stationary cupboard, a wardrobe full of freshly laundered clothes, whatever it is. Um, and I think we grow up with uh, internalising kind of messages about about our relationship with with resources in that way. Um, I think this impacts probably some people more than others, uh, especially if you had a particularly loud story about, you know, what happens when, when we run out oh there's no more when that runs out don't use too much has to last till christmas oh this is a once in a lifetime experience this is a once in a lifetime chance don't turn it down don't waste it um and i'm really interested in how these kinds of stories get internalized and inform our beliefs about uh, i guess we you know the, the most stark most obvious uh, beliefs about things like money um and uh, the way that we hold and think about resources hoarding things uh are we are we sort of generous with things how do we relate to other people in relation to the, to the to our resources and um yeah that kind of stuff and so it's not a black and white thing because again i think we can slip into complacency if we're taught to believe there's always more where that came from so if you have no sense of the scarcity of like i ate all the chocolate oh don't worry here's another it's another bar And you keep eating until you're like, I'm bored of chocolate, Um, then you might not have a a healthy appreciation for the fact that actually things do run out. Um, And I guess the issue is where we put the emphasis. You know, things do run out. We can't do everything. And we can ruin the experience when we uh, use things if we're worried about wasting them. We can say yes to things because we're afraid of missing out, even if it doesn't fit our current priorities you know we can sort of hoard things we can grasp things that actually that's you don't need to be holding that right now and so the safety associated with running out isn't i don't think that we can get more you know it may well be true that we can get more it might be that i can go and get coffee and cheese when i run out so that's fine don't worry um but this is about the reassurance that it's okay even when this does disappear and you can't get more Just like the strong leader says, uh, we will figure out what to do if this goes wrong. It's like, we will figure out what to do when this runs out. Our confidence is fed by knowing that while change will happen at some point in the future, uh, it will be okay when it does. You know, you're not alone. You're not going to be sort of abandoned, high and dry. This, I think, is a huge source of confidence to our ability to, to relate to, to enjoy, and to make the most of things that we that we have in our hands and to do that in a very present way and to do it with, like mindful mindful of you know the scarcity of resources but also knowing that this is not the be all and end all in our haven cotter some people were talking about how fear of being misunderstood can sometimes feel bigger for them than the fear of failure so people receiving what they say what they do um, in bad faith Essentially, it's the fear that many people have shared with me at different times. This idea of constantly um, second-guessing and overthinking—you know—how are people going to interpret this creative work or this idea or this thing that I want to say? And this goes beyond a kind of like due diligence and, and carefulness and, and a mindfulness of uh, how other people, you know, sensitivity to other people. It kind of crosses into a, into a, a fear. That is is a, a quite a uh, a paralyzing fear. It stops you from from operating. Stops you from acting. Um, and you start to see everything as an unnecessary risk because that idea of like lifting your head above the parapet is more frightening and more risky than just sort of not doing that. Obviously, which it is always, um, but for different reasons. And I think that yeah, that's one of the one of the things. When we're talking about the the safety to fail, a lot of the time that unsafety comes from people who should be supportive. The that kind of movement of supportivity. Whoa, that's not a word. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I think <laughs> I'll totally put myself off there. Um, putting putting ourselves in mind, are uh, the like, whatever we do, someone is waiting to misunderstand it and when we view people and creative work through a bad faith lens i think we can turn anything into a problem there's always something to misinterpret uh, to misunderstand in anything that we encounter especially when language is involved because language in itself is our imperfect way of trying to express things that can't be fully articulated Um, and so it takes courage and bravery to take risks despite being misunderstood by those who want to misunderstand and knowing that there are people out there who want to misunderstand it kind of then also takes good faith in us to receive other people as having fundamentally good intentions. And I think that's all we can do a lot of the time is to, to model the kind of faith that we, we want to receive um, and to, to not fall into that trap ourselves. And again, this reminds me of that that idea of freedom, as we're talking about in the courage to be disliked. This, this idea of freedom isn't the absence of the thing that you don't want, it's the acceptance of it, it's the willingness to face it. You know, you will be disliked by someone, whether you like it or not, and freedom is accepting that. Um, you know, we will be misunderstood by people who want to misunderstand without seeking connection with us, without seeking to understand us, whether we like it or not. And freedom is accepting that fact, contributing to the world anyway, and choosing whether or not and how to respond to those people without being drawn into that sort of tit-for-tat gamesmanship, bad faith exchanges and so on. Um, And we might notice this when someone apologises. You know, what sort of apologies do we demand and permit and accept? And I think you know generally as a society we've become pretty terrible at apologizing there's very very few um authentic apologies and even when there is how do we respond to that apology do we seek reconciliation do we accept it do we say oh that's that's great they're like seeking to find that connection or do we do we kind of receive it in bad faith and make when we do that, we, we kind of make taking responsibility for our mistakes, owning our mistakes, coming in, um, sort of being honest about things. We make apologizing a, an unsafe thing for anybody who's looking on to do because it's just like, I don't accept that apology. You are a terrible person or whatever. So we had an interesting chat uh, sort of related to this about the difference in safe to fail in the team versus uh, the the crowd um, so when we were talking about uh, the, the the cricket example I noticed this when New Zealand beat England in that one run victory very very close like doesn't get any closer um, the crowd because I was kind of looking out for it I was like yeah because we talked about you know how can you do you feel safe to fail do you feel the pressure of the crowd that may, may make it not feel safe to fail um, or does the team does that team environment And that reassurance that comes through the leadership of that uh, of that team make it sort of okay. And so I was listening, and the the crowd is fundamentally quite unsafe, (laughs) Uh, while overwhelmingly supportive. There are people who love to um, to complain and to vocalise the reasons why they feel personally let down and saddened and angry. about the decisions that England made during that game and this is why that led to them losing and I can't believe they tried that and it was you know all of these things that it's like "Ah, do be quiet Um, but then the team is an environment that we can control we can have that clear and unified vision but the crowd has its own agenda uh, a much more sort of fluid and dynamic set of desires uh, you know, as a team, you you share a vision with the crowd. You can tell the crowd that, you know, this is what we're trying to do here. This is uh, the culture that we're building around this strategy. We're aiming for that vision. Um, I hope you're on board. Take it or leave it. Um, and they will either pay to come and see you play and support or they won't. And, you know, that is whatever it is. But uh, publicly failing is scary. It's a scary thing that sports people have to deal with quite, Uniquely, I think. Um, and so leadership uh, has to model the safety in failure by publicly backing those who fail through a lens of, um, you know, they succeeded in giving themselves to the cause. And a good leader then, you know, backs their player by saying, yeah, they, they went about that in exactly the way I asked. I couldn't ask for any more. Like, it wasn't to be today, but we'll, you know, we'll try again tomorrow. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask him to play in any other way. Um and so the team can be united together but if the voice of the crowd gets into that environment it can cause chaos you know if the if the leadership i suppose is is sort of fragmented or, or weak in some way uh, there isn't a single vision in the in the crowd there isn't a unified approach being called for by every supporter that's like no we all believe that this is this is what we should do everybody has different ideas of how this would how this should work how this how you would what you need to do in order to win, how you, what you need to do in order to uh, be better than you are, especially if you're losing. Um, and yeah, so it, it's impor- important to, to kind of distinguish, I suppose, in that, in that respect. And with the sports team, you also have the issue of competition among the pool of potential players that you're selecting from. And this, this was something that was on my mind um, when you're thinking about, okay, there, there is safety to fail but there's also competition for that place. And so how how much can you fail uh, before you're kicked out of the team, before you're dropped? Um, and I think just because you're playing this week, so it, it, again, it's creating expectations, it's communicating, it's, it's having these conversations and the confidence coming from uh, the reassurance that you're part of something bigger than your place in the team. Uh, so just because you're playing this week doesn't guarantee you're going to be playing next week. Um, and there have been some huge calls in terms of who to include and who to leave out in the cricket team example um there's some great players who who've lost their places um, and some players you, you you'd be like, "Oh well wow, where, <laughs> where have they come from um but there's an apparent spirit shared by everyone involved in and around the team that reflects the sense that while your place is uh, like not guaranteed in the current team you know you may be in this week but that's not guaranteed your place in the cause, your place in the bigger story is permanent and that can't be taken away. You're part of this. You're a character in this story. No matter what happens next, you are a member of this. You belong. And while it may, it might take some morning to realize, you know, if you, if you get dropped or, you know, you realize, okay, I think the, the team's moved beyond me. Like I'm, my time is gone. Um, I think you can still find confidence that was built from the acceptance of impermanence and growth through change. You know, this, this realisation that actually no one is bigger than that team. The team is something outside of any individual. No one's going to be here forever. It's nothing personal, it's just life. Um, but you are forever written into the story of this thing that, and that can't be taken away. And there's an interesting question to consider as well about the difference between confidence and arrogance again linked to the the safety to fail we might create a story about confident people when we equate their confidence with arrogance Uh, i don't know you know i think these words can can get used interchangeably uh, but i think there's a a difference that is worth grappling with worth understanding between arrogance and confidence it might be a further difference when we consider that overconfidence too um, you know, whether overconfidence is akin to misplaced confidence that we talked about earlier, uh, that sense of maybe complacency in things falling into place without us really needing to take responsibility or contribute in any way. Um, the, the kind of unseen picking up of the pieces in the trail of chaos that we leave in our wake. Do, do you know any people like that It <laughs> seem oblivious to the fact that they're highly, highly confident, but only because they've got people picking up after them. And they don't realise it, uh, but yeah, that, that's not what I'm talking about here. With the, the difference between arrogance and confidence, the so the England cricket team is springing their step that could be confused with arrogance. I think it has been you know interpreted as arrogance, but I think as we've explored, this swagger is caused not by a belief in you know being better than everybody else, but in the promised safety that when other people when other teams beat them, they will they will be okay. that's where the confidence comes from and so you know we hear as I said a mutual appreciation for the unbelievable levels of talent at the elite level in sport not just cricket like all sorts of sports differences in skill and ability are are often marginal often it's like uh, you know at the level of talent anyone could beat anyone else on any given day so the confidence isn't built on the belief that you are fundamentally better than others um, this could be easily disproven or or at least called into question arrogance however is the belief that you have to be better than others it's not even a question it's a uh, an internalized story that starts and ends with a sense of uh, superiority often linked to a sense of inferiority perhaps instilled by someone who used you as an object of projection for their own arrogance for their own inferiority but it carries a message that Equates self worth with being the best. And in order to be worthy, in order to be acceptable and accepted as a human, you have to be better than others. And how do you be better than others, especially when you're not? uh, Because those differences are so marginal. You maybe make others afraid of you, you try and make everybody believe that you're better than them. But you do this by instilling perception and fear. And I think this is the core difference between arrogant, uh, an arrogant person and a confident person. You know, When you spend time with a confident person, you come away feeling more positive about yourself, empowered in some way. When you spend time with an arrogant person, you come away with uh, maybe sort of lower self-esteem, a lower sense of self-worth. Um, confidence lifts us up. Arrogance sort of presses us down. We see this in sport. You've likely experienced it in life. Um, I talked in our, in our session about a particular football player, I won't name, but you could probably, uh, if you're aware of football, you know who I'm talking about, um, who over the past few years has kind of shown a sense of the destructive power of arrogance. Uh, Absolute world-class player, really, really top quality player. But the teams he's played for um, have, have performed better when he hasn't been playing generally and the style would change not necessarily strategically but just because of his presence in the team when he was playing and so you could it, it, there was like you the camera would pan to him when someone else makes a mistake and it, you could see him like rolling his eyes and go oh geez I would work with these um with these losers and he'd, he'd always want to take you know set pieces to be taking free kicks and penalties even though there's other people in the team with better statistics, you know, people who are more likely to score <laughs> uh, than him. And he would march straight down the tunnel on his, uh, on his own when the team loses, go straight to the changing room while the rest of the team go and thank the supporters in the crowd and kind of say, yeah, thanks for, for coming along and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so th- this, this is kind of like the destructive insidiously destructive power of arrogance. You could kind of sense the, the fear that is instilled in others. Like it's that person, if if not overt, overt eggshells, you, you kind of have a sense of when they're there, people are, are sort of on eggshells around them. It's the sort of like, I hope I don't mess up because I don't want him rolling his eyes, that kind of thing. Um, I think sometimes we mistake arrogance for confidence. We, we might say that player, is he's really, really confident, isn't he? Uh, and I'd argue that, you know, if he was truly confident, he'd have the humility to encourage and support and empower those around him, especially later on in your career when you, you're kind of more mature, you've been doing it a long time um, and you kind of move through into that next season where it's like, oh, actually I can be, a, I can have a mentoring role here. I can encourage, I can empower, I can really help these people become the best that they can be. So they'd feel better. They wouldn't fear those raised eyebrows and those sarcastic smiles. They'd be gracious in defeat together. The best leaders make it feel safe to embrace the uncertain outcome and to know that whatever happens, it's going to be okay on the other side. And I think this is why it's so hard to feel truly confident when we're uh, alone a lot. I don't know about you, but my inner critic is always quick to point out the potential risk of failing. And it takes a lot of willpower and planning to convince him that, you know, even if all this goes wrong, I'll I'll be okay on the other side. Often make sure there isn't another side because it's like, no, just don't do the thing. The inner critic is quick to pull the trick of equating failure of a task as demonstrating my failure as a human. You know, if something... I try doesn't work out as maybe I hope it might want to turn that into a story about me rather than a story about the thing I was you know brave enough to attempt and this thinking closes the door for growth as we talked about last time because it's a fixed rather than a flexible story so I just want to finish with this thought you know when we accept and even invite failure we are nurturing the potential for excellence. In The Courage to be Disliked, they write about this pursuit of superiority, not as the drive to be better than others, but what can be a gentle inner drive to learn, grow and improve on how things are today, how we are today. But integrating that, working alongside that, adapting through that, encouraging failure and getting more comfortable and better at it isn't a road towards average it's actually the way we grow towards excellence if we're afraid to fail we play it safe and it's through second guessing what we need to do to play safe uh, and emulate and conform and be like everyone else that actually that's how we become average and maybe even in the long run a little bit resentful and arrogant you know like the armchair analyst Better than anyone who's ever played the game or coached the game. Uh, it's just that you know they were never given their time, never given the opportunity to to show their metal and to shine. Not their fault. Um, all right. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'd encourage you. Um, you know, if confidence is a thing for you, come and uh, explore that courtyard workshop. If you want to hear the story of the three little pigs again. Um, it's uh, yeah, just a great way to sort of think about those different sources of confidence, where they are for you, um, where you'd like to, to kind of reinforce that um, around your current sort of challenges and goals and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I think it, it sort of helps to look at look at the idea of confidence in a, a slightly deeper way than maybe affirmations and a plan to fake it till you make it that kind of thing that which you know there may be a time for those things when it comes to building like depth and real confidence i think there's, there are some firmer foundations that we can build a brick house on so yes as i say i'll pop a link in the show notes for that so go and find that uh through the haven uh it's a free event as well so i hope you have a great day i'll catch you again very soon until then do remember that even when it appears to be out of reach Gentleness is always an option. All right, take care. Bye bye.